are listening to a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So we're now on the second Sunday in the season of Advent. We watch as the Gospel text starts backing us toward the story we will tell on Christmas Eve. Last Sunday, it was an adult Jesus preaching dire warnings very close to the end of his ministry. Now this week, we've moved closer to the beginning of the Gospel according to Luke, with the appearance of John the Baptist, who speaks of the one who is more powerful than I who is coming. This is paired with a text from the prophet Malachi. Together, the two readings speak with urgency about what is necessary for the people to do, essentially to repent, to turn around and set their lives in order. What they have to do that before any fulfillment might come. So let me just start with Malachi. He writes sometime around the year 515 before the birth of Christ, some 75 years or so after the leading citizens of Israel had been exiled to Babylon and their home city and country devastated by the Babylonian army. Well, this 75 years later, they've been given permission to return home. And a new temple has been built to replace Solomon's grand temple. This second temple is far more modest than the first one. Life in general is a struggle. The rebuild is very slow. This is how N.T. Wright describes what prophets such as Malachi represent. He writes, When Solomon built the temple... The glory of Yahweh filled the house. The glory had departed when the Babylonians destroyed the temple. But even when the temple was rebuilt, the glory did not come back. Post-exile prophets like Malachi saw the return of Yahweh to Zion as still in the future. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. When that happened, the whole created order would, of course, roll out the red carpet. Valleys would be filled in, mountains flattened, and God would return in splendor to Jerusalem. So that's what Malachi is envisioning. He is awaiting the arrival of God's messenger in the new temple, who will bring about these changes and inaugurate this fullness But who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi asks. Who can stand when he appears? Much as the people long for the presence of God to be again felt in the temple, in their very midst, in fact, Malachi is insistent that that will not begin as an easy day. So he writes, God is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. God will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, 
and will purify the descendants of Levi and refine them like gold and silver while they present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years like it used to be. What's notable here, of course, it's for Malachi, it is the, quote, descendants of Levi. So the priests in the temple system. That's who needs this purification. In Malachi's view, it comes down to the purity and integrity of a temple-centered faith in Israel. And so the priests must be, must be, beyond reproach. No more half-baked priests looking out for their own well-being, Malachi has insisted. These new priests must be priests for the people. So did it ever happen? Well, perhaps to some degree. But anyone who recalled the word of Isaiah cited in the gospel today would know that there's yet a long way to go. Remember those words, you just heard them. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked made straight, rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. For Israel, the roads were never that smooth. The crooked paths never that straight. Anyone who stopped to consider these deep and ancient promises would have recognized that they were still waiting for their fulfillment. And in the days in which John the Baptist was pounding out his message, the land was occupied by the Roman Empire, ruled with considerable harshness under the direction of Pontius Pilate. Lots of crooked paths, lots of rough ways to be sure, So there's John. He's standing in that prophetic tradition. He's proclaiming his message. Sometimes said that the prophets were sent to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. When you look at Isaiah and even Jeremiah, you can see that dynamic was at work. They they spoke such words of comfort to people who were the most broken, and yet they afflicted those who were the most comfortable. But John... Rarely was there a comfortable word spoken by that wild man in his camel-haired garment and his diet of locusts and wild honey. You brood of vipers, he cries out. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. And don't you think for a minute that you can rely on your birthright as sons and daughters of Abraham and Sarah, put your own lives in order. What does that look like, John? How are we to live? Just the fact that people come out to see him in the wilderness, seeking his counsel, submitting to his baptism, says that he was more than just a little compelling. And so he answers them. He says first, Whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. Whoever has food 
do likewise. John is well aware that the system has made for rich and poor, and that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. So he cuts to the chase with that very straightforward advice. And in it, by the way, is a a bit of that comfort for the afflicted that is so typical of these prophets. But what do you know? It's not just normal folks who go out to see John. There are among the crowd some tax collectors. Remember, tax collectors were Jewish citizens who were employed by the Roman Empire, who were notorious for taking too much taxation money in order to fill their own pockets. Not popular. So they come and they ask, Teacher, what should we do as tax collectors? John said to them, Collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. Period. Simple as that. Similarly, some soldiers come out, most probably not Roman soldiers, but rather uh, the soldiers of King Herod, so Jewish folk themselves. We, they say, what should we do? John said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations. Be satisfied with your wages. They're measured responses, not without comfort, even in the challenge he's issuing. John is, in fact, sufficiently compelling as a speaker and a presence that the people begin to wonder if he might just be the Messiah the promised one who might bring the sort of reality that prophets like Malachi and Isaiah had dreamed of. But John is clear, (laughs) not me, I'm not the Messiah. I baptize you with water, but one is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, when Jesus does appear and begin his ministry, it is marked not so much by a winnowing fork and fire as it is by compassion. Again and again we see his heart moved by the needs of the people. And again and again when he turns to teach them, it is with parables. And they are often, particularly in the first half of the gospel, grace-filled parables, like the stories of the prodigal, or the good Samaritan, or the laborers in the vineyard, the list goes on and on. There seems no winnowing fork in his hand, which will leave John wondering, had he been mistaken about Jesus? Was he wrong to think he was the promised one who would come with fire? When he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the promise? Jesus' answer is simple. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. 
The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. Tell John, in short, that while I may not quite be what he was expecting, everything I'm doing is quite in line with what the prophet Isaiah had taught about the arrival of the kingdom. It is a paradigm shift, really, and one that is shot through the whole of the gospel tradition. So listen again to N.T. Wright. In none of these cases did the reality correspond to what first century readers of the prophets might have expected. The priesthood remained corrupt. Tiberius and Herod still ruled, and ruled brutally. The temple had not been filled with the bright cloud of God's presence. Hills and valleys remained intact. Nevertheless, Jesus' life, and supremely his death and resurrection, forced his followers to read the old prophecies with new eyes. This this, after all, must have been what the prophecies were about all along. Indeed. And that's why we're here, 2,000 years later, telling again these stories, sharing again in the symbolic meal of bread and wine which Jesus gave to us. Yes, there is still corruption. And yes, there are still many who rule with brutality and conniving. The Jerusalem temple is long gone. The hills and valleys remain intact. And yet, the kingdom of God is in our very midst, calling us to live more deeply into it now, and inviting us to look forward to the day when it will all be brought utterly and entirely home. And in the meantime, we come, we cry, we watch, we wait, we look, we long for Christ to be with us, trusting that he is. That's Advent. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. This has been a sermon podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For information on our church and to access the full catalog of our podcasts going all the way back to 2006, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca. In addition, if you are interested in supporting our online work, you can find information on the website using the Donate button located on the top right-hand corner. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.